iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? It was a quarter billion cars and light duty trucks on U.S. roads. And if you overnight had level five autonomy and every consumer comfortable with autonomous drive. So just wave a wet magic wand and pretend yeah. that, you know, we all got over our fears and it's what we want to use. You would need somewhere between 33 million and 50 million cars, depending on who you ask. It's an eighth to a fifth. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. We have a super interesting show for you this week. You know, there's a saying that goes back to the gold rush. Oh yeah, I'm going way back. Uh, that most of the people who made their fortunes didn't find gold, they sold shovels. And today's show, we have Pat Romano, who is in the great electric car revolution that is coming. He's selling lots of shovels. Romano is the chief executive of ChargePoint, which is the world's largest operator of electric car charging stations. So I don't know if that metaphor quite works, but you get the idea. ChargePoint has more than 50,000 charging points, <laughs> charging ports, uh, and counting. And what's interesting is that they've been at this for like 10 years. So going back to when no one really needed a charging station because no one had an electric car. And what's interesting here is it feels like the market appears to maybe finally be catching up to their evangelism and the car companies themselves seem to agree. So ChargePoint last month raised $240 million from a whole bunch of investors, including BMW, Daimler, uh, Chevron, the big oil company, obviously. So all of these companies whose traditional business model would effectively be under attack by what ChargePoint is doing. But Romano reckons that the deal is simply a recognition of by the powers that be that you know we're fast approaching a tipping point to a time when it actually makes more sense to own an electric car rather than your typical petrol-driven car. Anyhow, so we talk about this kind of brave new world that he envisions, whether it will indeed come to pass, what's kind of standing in the way, and if it does uh, come to fruition, why it will be so very, very messy. And before we get started, one production note, uh, you will probably hear some static here and there, which apparently was due to me putting my phone next to the recorder, so apologies, that's my bad. Uh, hopefully it's not too annoying. And lastly, if you haven't already, press pause right now. Give a rating and review, it really does help other folks find the show. And I think that's it, we can get to the show now. So without further ado, I give you Pat Romano. Enjoy. One of the things I think is interesting about your company is you're kind of hiding in plain sight a little bit. So could you just give a sense of 
charge point, what you guys are, and kind of where you are, where your where your charging stations are. I think hiding in plain sight, I'm going to have to steal that. That's probably one of the better ways of describing, I think, charging in general. Um, so a little bit of background. It's a, believe it or not, a 10-year-old company in a, what is probably a seven-year-old market or so in terms of when the first EV started shipping in the United States, and they followed pretty quickly in, in Europe and Asia and other parts of the world. But what's interesting is from the general public's perspective, most people are just kind of getting their first experiences with kind an of electric now. vehicle now, yeah. right? So the early days of the company were spent in a very lonely fashion trying to convince the general sources of capital to invest in a company like this that electric drivetrain was going to be the ultimate way that drivetrains evolved for transportation of goods and people. And at the time, there were folks saying, well, it's going to be, you know, clean diesel for a while. We've seen that tape play now. There was still conjecture around whether it was going to be a hydrogen-based economy. We, for a lot of reasons, don't, don't think that's the right direction for transportation. And the overall onset of electric vehicles was big questions about the true support that auto OEMs had for it, et cetera. So the first bunch of years of my tenure here and was being more of a missionary about the market than being a missionary about charging. And then the way we approach charging was that it's not a gas station model anymore, a fueling station, I should say. If you're going to go drive beyond your battery range, well, sure, you need to stop somewhere and get a fast charge, which is very much a pattern match off of current gas station behavior. But for the everyday charging, it's going to be charge while you park. Your car is the best rested member of your family. It probably exceeds your cat uh, (laughs) because it is only operating 4% of the time. 96% of the time, it's asleep. Given that it's parked 96% of the time, it has plenty of opportunity to acquire energy while it's parked. That's the way we looked at charging. Home, work, around town, and then highway only when you're on a long trip for fast chargers. So the only thing in our view that matches the gas station model is the driving beyond your battery range on a longer trip. The rest right. So this idea that you know, you're driving down the street and in the future you'd see, instead of a gas station or petrol forecourt, as they say uh-huh. in the UK, you'll just see something very similar but with just a bunch of electric chargers. Exactly. So the hiding in plain sight thing, the reason that you don't, as a consumer, see electric vehicle fueling as prevalent as it already is, is because you're looking in the wrong spot. But the way electric vehicle charging is conspicuous is it's conspicuous through the mobile app on your phone in your pocket. Your in-dash navigation system will tell you where they are as well, depending on the vehicle OEM. Most of your outside the home or apartment or condo fueling is going to be at work. You see that with your eyeballs every day when you pull into the parking lot. And when it's in a parking lot, you actually want to make the device fit in with the surroundings. You don't want to put a big canopy over every single one because that's not what the place of business is all about. Yeah. How many how many stations or chargers do you guys have out in the wild right now? So they, they come in for different applications, but if you just did a raw point, port count, it's over 50,000 ports. 50,000? Yeah. I came here about six weeks ago or so, and one of your colleagues showed me like the, the map of all your charging ports. That's what struck me is that there's a ton of them. 
but I still think of it as a, a kind of a rarity that's going to be really, if you ever got an electric car, it'd be really hard to find places to charge it. But that's not the case. It it's seems. not. I'm in a lot of public speaking kind of engagements where there's a panel of experts from different places in the industry. And the moderator will inevitably always ask one question that's constant in every panel I've ever been on, which is how are we going to solve the massive shortage of charging infrastructure for all the electric vehicles that are coming? And I usually glibly respond, what problem? Just to get a reaction. Sure, on the fast charge side, there isn't, aside from Tesla superchargers, there isn't the perfectly planned yet installation of essentially little electric lily pads you can leap between right when you're on a long trip but the infrastructure required for most cars comes as the cars are purchased so if you take our parking lot right here we look just like any other company uh, that has ev charging we're no different even though we make this stuff when more employees buy electric vehicles we add more ports of charging and that's kind of what's happening in workplaces all over you know all over the world it's not a phenomenon that's local to any geography and so can you talk about the genesis of the company? You talked about kind of starting out as missionaries, but the founder started before you yeah. here, right? Yeah. What's interesting is this is my fourth startup, and it's by far the most interesting one, by far likely to be the most successful, and it's the only one I wasn't on the founding team of, which means I guess my personal judgment is a bit suspect, but um, <laughs> uh, I'm glad to have figured it out. So it was about three years old when I joined. The premise was very, very simple. It was charge while you park, don't find a pump. So that's the simple tagline there. And then it's going to be unattended and it's going to be not the primary reason for the business adjacent to that parking lot that those things are on to exist. It's not the core thing. It's an amenity effectively. It's an amen amenity of target or asda or whatever exactly or or your employer or um, recreational area or what have you so the minute it flips into that mode you have to provide a complete solution because the business wants that amenity but they don't want a burden they don't want another chore if it's going to be a parking model and it's going to be charge while you park while you're doing something else you have to make the business that's engaged in that doing something else with that consumer just turnkey something with you so they don't have to think about it. The whole notion that we needed a cloud service, a mobile application, a whole network of installers to take the pain out of this, I think that was the aha. Right. And we've never pivoted. I mean, I guess what would you pivot to? <laughs> well, we've never even pivoted within a business model. Right. But your founder, he's, he was, uh, his name escapes me, but he's the, the mayor. Richard Lowenthal. Yeah. Well, he was mayor of Cupertino. He was, a, I believe, a two-term mayor of Cupertino, but that's not his background is in tech. He's, he, he was a tech executive. He's got an engineering background, right. much like myself. So Richard is a unique mix in that he, through just personal desire, understands public policy. You know, he was a mayor, but also heavily involved in policy surrounding electrification transportation from the early days of his tenure here when he started the company. Even after I joined, he continued to drive that. To this day, our involvement in policy, and we now are involved globally, involved in EU policy and in country-level policy in Europe as well as the United States, Richard set those, all those balls in motion and set that value system for the company that we need good policy 
along with good technology, which sort of mirrors his background. And he's still here. He's a CTO, is that right? No, he was. He retired and is still on our board. Right, okay. And right, right. by the way, beyond his board-level involvement, his has helped us out with a lot of things. Right. If we can get him off the golf course, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll happily have him in. And so do you wake up every day and th- thank God for Elon Musk? Yeah. So I've been, I use a simple phrase uh, when I get asked, you know, what do I think some of the biggest things that are anchoring the motion in this direction? You know, what I often say is thank God for Tesla, California, and the Chinese. Explain. In no particular order, Tesla's all in on electrification because they don't have a gasoline legacy that they are transitioning away from. Yeah. So they are moving at a speed is, which is only limited by how fast they can conquer the issues in front of them, uh, which is pretty fast, to get to a fully electrified product line that covers all the price point detents in the marketplace. And they also seem to kind of make electric vehicles cool. Yeah, the other thing is, yeah, one of my things that I commonly am in conversations on is the way to start a new trend that's a consumer trend is it has to be an aspirational trend. There has to be a cool factor associated with it. You could have some utilitarian stuff, too, that's really compelling, but most of it's got to, you know, start from cool. They cornered the market on cool. The other thing that's interesting is they did not approach an auto company using a traditional auto company as a model. Everything from how they sell it to what they design versus what they use supply chain for, really great decisions because it's a completely clean sheet of paper. So look at the advances in battery technology that that company has done. There are a lot of critics out there, but I'm certainly not one of them. I think if you look at it just objectively, they've done a great job. And then if you take California, for example, our both Tesla and our home state, we are a model policy-wise as a state that a lot of the world is looking at in terms of how do you create an appropriate incentive for electric vehicles to be when they're at a sticker price deficit, for example, how do you create incentives that work to get people to take the plunge? Now, they're this on the a $7,500 rebate. Well, yeah, but there are non-monetary things like, hey, use the carpool lane. Oh, I don't know. You can do that. If yeah. You're... And they're starting to throttle it in terms of how many stickers they give out. And now the stickers for an all-battery electric vehicle are now not, there's a year at which they'll sunset, so they're not good forever. But they're in a planned way trying to create as many monetary and non-monetary incentives as possible to offset the differential in sticker price in the early days. And that's sunsetting right now because even with a little bit of time and, and history, you're, you're starting to see the price parity between gas cars and electric cars really come into focus. I mean, we're not that far from it right now. There's also things that they've done in clean energy policy with respect to just general renewables for our grid. All of that stuff all linked together, I think, is just no model's perfect, but kudos to the state for trying some things that haven't been tried before, and they've, of course, set a model for other folks. Lastly, the Chinese car companies are coming at this as the way that China finally gets a significant entry into the automobile industry, which traditionally, outside of their own home market, they haven't had. Are there any Chinese companies here now, today, selling electric cars? On the bus side, you've got BYD. Right. And you have Chinese companies looking, finishing design, and hopefully entering production where they'll be bringing those to market. But more importantly, 
worldwide, you're seeing a lot of technology really being invested in in China because they're really trying to figure out how to get a long-term play there. Also remind you that Volvo is owned by Geely, Chinese parent, and you're seeing the moves of Volvo is making in electric vehicles because they're really leaning into it. You know, black cabs bring this to a lot of the listenership. Black cabs in London are one of the major producers of those is Geely again, and they're all electrifying. You're seeing the contribution there of that massive investment coming out of China. But again, much like Tesla, throttled, no pun intended, by a gasoline legacy to protect. So we can see from from here there's some charging stations in your parking lot charging ports. Is that the port? I think is the well, just they're yeah. typically two cars per one of those. So yeah. that's why we just we tend to count them by port. To make what that is today, was it, were there any engineering challenges you had to get? through to get those to where they are. Yeah, they, there's a lot of engineering challenges in making what is natively a very industrial product consumer-friendly. I would say that most of the breakthroughs that we've been able to do with our chargers, and, and they're really very distinct you know, market segments, so the chargers are pretty different depending on what segment we're trying to hit. There's a couple things we did. Number one, the cables cannot be on the ground. In Europe in particular, we're not big fans of the model where the user carries a cable around in their trunk and has to get it out in the rain and plug it in, in a, mm. to a public charger. That's That happens in Europe? In most places in Europe, yeah. In the U.S., they've all been generally attached cable from the beginning. Why would you not have an attached cable? In the early days of the market, in a lot of countries in Europe, there was an assumption that vandalism and theft would, because they're un, it's an un, in an unattended setting, would reduce the probability of you encountering a charger you could use, mostly because the danger of shock is such mm. that most vandals don't want to take the risk of cutting a cable with a pair of bolt cutters because they can't determine if... Yeah. They're going to be safe. It would be like vandalizing a gas pump. Like, what's the, where's the fun well, of that? Well, there's an attendant there, though, <laughs> right. most of the time. And there's usually surveillance, plenty of camera surveillance, although there is almost everywhere now, especially in the U.K. Yeah. It's making it consumer-friendly. So all our chargers that we sell for commercial applications have, have uh, cable retraction, so there's no foot traffic hazard. It's little things. We won't sell one for a public setting that doesn't have a screen because you want to be able to tell someone what's going on and walk them through things. We've had to do a ton of investment in mobile, and I know that's not directly in the charger, but if we've done our job right on the mobile application, you don't really need to understand how to use the charger because it's so simple. You just hold your mobile phone up, and it authenticates much like uh, Apple Pay would, right? We use the same technology, and off you go. It's more of a system... a system problem. On our fast chargers, there is a ton of tech we've had to do. That's a very complicated engineering problem to make that safe, serviceable, highly modular. If you're in a bus depot, if you lost some charging capacity and you have 100 buses that have to be ready in the morning and you lose 20% of your charging capacity because you have a failure of some sort, you need to be able to recover. So we built technologies that allow that to happen. Lots of software integration work for energy storage, for energy management in general. This is a hugely diverse technology company. Most people don't know that when they look at our stuff. And is there still a long way to go? Because like the fast chargers now, at least Tesla ones, I think, are with 80% charge in half an hour. Can you get to, I don't know, 90% in 15 minutes? Yeah, we have chargers that'll go, you know, as high as 500 amps with liquid cooled delivery cables. So that's 
with uh, newer battery packs that are coming out that are roughly three to four times the charging capacity of, say, what is a usual Tesla supercharger experience. Oh, wow. But the limiter is the battery. If the car's battery management system imposes a limit to preserve battery life because the manufacturer doesn't want it to charge that, you know, that quickly, then the battery management system wins. But there are cars coming that will be able to put in 400 kilometers in 10 to 15 minutes, and you're starting to get to levels there where you're really starting to mimic a gas station experience for long-haul driving. It's like when you start to look at all of that, approaching price parity, this idea of range anxiety kind of going away, there seems to be inevitability to this being the new way that people get around. Do you have any sense of how quickly that will happen? Or I mean, I'm sure you're talking to the big car manufacturers all the time mm-hmm. about you know where things are in 2018. So the only catchphrase for new tech like this is it's really slow until it's not, and then it's going really fast. And, and it takes a certain number of pieces to be in place, and then the consumer adoption rate actually just skyrockets in a very short period of time. Let me talk about the practical limiters. Okay. There's two practical limiters to the adoption of electric vehicles. We have headlights into the very near future where there's price point parity with gasoline vehicles close enough in. But we're still talking about, let's say, 35K is probably... Yeah. 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 But you've got a Tesla proving with the Model 3 and all the teardowns are, are actually corroborating this that, hey, you know, they actually can be profitable at those lower price points. Right. The thing is, as long as a consumer is owning and operating their own vehicle... There's a certain amount of it has to fit their lifestyle because it's a personally owned thing. Yeah. So there just aren't enough electric makes and models now at different price points to cover the consumer gamut. Yeah. It's a very emotional purchase, ultimately. Henry Ford's famous, you can have a Model T in any color as long as it's black, but that doesn't work anymore. That's probably going to start to hit its critical mass slide in two to to three years. Right. You're That's just based on what you see coming out of Detroit pipe. and yeah. Germany and everywhere else. Yeah, the biggest issue for many places is with no SUV or crossover choice, you're only going to penetrate the consumer market, especially in the United States, so much. And that's actually in certain European markets, while yeah. not at the same percentage. The UK, for example, it's pretty popular to own a crossover or a compact SUV. So that's got to get addressed. And that is getting addressed. You're seeing lots of announcements from car companies with uh, cars coming out six months from now to two years from now window. Second limiter, let's just take the United States statistics because I have them off the top of my head. Cars, depending on the year, sell in a volume of 14 to 17 million units. Next to your home, it's if you own a home, it's your second largest capital purchase. So they have a reasonably long life, and, and no one is going to dispose of a car because a, one that they really want comes out. They'll wait till it reaches a natural point in its useful life. The replacement their, cycle is long. It's long. There are 250 million in the U.S. cars and light-duty trucks on U.S. roads that are not working today. today. So if tomorrow 100% of vehicles that were sold were electric and there were no change in the sales rate and there was no change in the fleet size. It would take 15 years to replace the entire fleet. How long is it going to take? Well, in the outer years, people will be looking at the residual value getting depressed. And so it'll accelerate their willingness to change out of their car because they'll be like, I'm going to get stuck with this thing if I don't get rid of it. 
Um, and there's a whole issue with leasing that I won't go into around that in terms of residual squeezes that are, that are going to be an interesting an interesting problem downstream for gasoline cars, for example. And you're, I think you're already seeing some of that, especially in, in diesel. They don't really have a useful second life in Europe because they don't have good resale value. They don't have good resale value, but that a lot because of because they become kind of a pariah, basically. Like you just can't. But what happened was that knowledge wasn't in force at the time the residual was calculated at the sale of that car. Someone's left with a bad deal, and it's usually not the car owner. Yeah. They're thanking themselves that they don't have to sell the car, that they could just give it back. Oh, so and, the companies that are leasing these, it's kind of like a financial crisis in the offing. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it's small enough where it doesn't, you know, where it's a, where it's a blip and no, nothing significant. But the analogy for what will accelerate the adoption of EVs in the later years is a similar, you know, thing where you'll start to get enough deforestation of fossil fuel cars and the fueling infrastructure associated with it that it'll become easier to drive an EV and more economical because the residual will be there than it will be to drive a fossil fuel car. And so in the later years, you could actually see the penet- the replacement rate actually go up over the 14 to 17 right. million now, assuming they, we factor out the autonomy conversation and what that does to car ownership. So I have a Honda CRV mm-hmm. that, so I was in the UK for 15 years, well, 13 years, but came back, bought a car because we have a kid and we need, you need lots of equipment for kids. I just spent $43 to fill it up. How much does it cost to, I don't know, charge a car? So I'm going to give you a glib answer, and then I'll give you okay. what's behind it. Okay. Uh, almost nothing. Most people that are listening will be like, how can that be? Someone's got to pay for the electricity. Well, here's the interesting thing. Employers give you a lot of stuff at work, coffee, snacks. They buy you a laptop. You have to use it for yeah. work, but you can use it for personal. They give you sometimes an offset on your on your phone bill because you're using it both for personal and business. There's lots of things that you get from your employer. The cost of your employer giving you EV charging on a fully amortized basis, including the energy, is about the same price that they pay for coffee for you. Is that true? Yeah. So the so interesting- coffee is really expensive or the energy is really cheap? The energy is really cheap. The commercial cost, the average price for commercial energy in the United States is 12 cents a kilowatt hour on average for commercial. And remember, you're not trying to fill your whole battery. You're only trying to replace your commuting miles. The other thing is there are utility programs all over the world that contemplate incenting you to charge- or incenting your charging network that's at a place of business or in your home to dispense fuel when there's oversupply on the grid. And in that oversupply situation, the price can actually be free or negative. Right. Or it could be highly discounted even if it's not free. So the net of it is between the amenity fuel that you're going to get from work and shopping And from the highly discounted programs you're going to have, if you're flexible about letting the utility decide when to dispense energy to your car, mind you, it's sitting there overnight and it's sitting there at work all day, so that's not too hard a thing to get your head around. You know, your employer and your own utility bill not being affected much, it's literally negligible. And then when you add the penetration rate of home solar, and again, I'll use the United States stack because I know it off the top of my head, 30% of EV drivers have solar at home. And we're one small step away from solar plus a little bit of home storage. You're already seeing, for example, Tesla push that with the the Powerwall 
and what they've done, and other people are, are mimicking that. So now what you're seeing is the ability for a homeowner to have a dramatically, even if they're using some energy from the grid, it's dramatically less. So you integrate the vehicle into that picture. You integrate a little bit of grid programs from energy providers to flexibly offload energy to stabilize the grid. Then you look at the amenity value of just being a good employer or enticing you to shop in a store. And then you add the fact that the maintenance cost on that vehicle is effectively zero. It's negligible. There's no scheduled maintenance on on most EVs. And if there is, it's not necessary. So when you add up everything outside of when you leave with your brand new car, there isn't a whole lot else that you have to pay for. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Those 50,000 ports, how does that compare to, I don't know whether it's the best analogy is gas stations are actually gas hoses. Oh, it doesn't equate at all. In the U.S. stat, again, 120-ish thousand gas stations, plus or minus, depending on how you count them. There's arguments on, on exactly what the what the stat is. And they'll have an average of maybe eight, eight, 8 to 10 pumps in that range. You have about a, what is a million, that, a million? Plus. Call it a million pumps to support a quarter billion. Right. So it's 250 to 1. With EVs you're probably already better than that ratio because it's more of a parking coverage model. Now, there's some proportionality between the number of EVs in a particular parking lot at work or in a shopping area or what have you. We don't budget one-to-one. The best practices in the the workplace are 2.2 to 2.5 cars per port of EV charging. It's about the right ratio. Typically, when you put them in, you don't want construction going on in your parking lot every month. So you typically lean in a couple of years and you just make some estimates as to what the expansion will be and and then every couple of years you you add a little bit more but it's really kind of in that ratio at work and then at home it's effectively one-to-one and is there and it's probably a stupid question but you know like um cell phones Mm -hmm. every every cell phone has a different plug and it's a giant pain in the ass and there is this Mm -hmm. whole move by the whole cell phone industry to unify plugs is there a similar situation with EVs? Yeah, you'd think we'd learn as a society. <laughs> you know, beta VHS. Yeah, uh, so do you have to, like, you know, drive around with a dongle, effectively? No, well, okay. So 
While I really wish you didn't have to need an adapter for Tesla and you didn't have two standards in Europe and two standards in the U.S. for fast charge, we just put both cables on every one of our fast chargers. Okay. What it's doing is it's causing a, a little, a little bit more consumer complexity, but not a whole lot, and a little bit more cost, but not a whole lot. By the way, none of the differences requiring either adapters or different cables, none of those differences give you any consumer benefit. It's different for different sake, but no benefit. You right. can't say, well, really, I would really love the feature, this feature from Chatamo to be in this feature from the other standard. It's just, just it's because. different. At least, cool. you know, in the old videotape days, beta and VHS, that you could argue about the yeah. differences. But in that, you know, you're charging your car, electrons are showing up into the battery, and, you know, the consumer's like, okay, that does the same thing. Do you worry about a crash in the oil price? There is history of, you know, drives to increase fuel efficiency and kind of get, maybe make smaller cars, mm-hmm. and then the oil price crashes. And then everybody starts buying SUVs again. And it kind of reverses a lot of those gains. And even some of the laws get overturned. You don't think that is a danger for the long-term future of what you guys are doing here? I I don't think the EV industry is conforming to the full macroeconomic forces of the auto industry just yet because it's so small. So what we've seen in the early days, which we're still in, is that there really is no substantial correlation to oil price. People that want an EV tend to get an EV, and they really don't care whether oil is a dollar a barrel or $100 a barrel. They just don't care. What I can tell you is the consumers are very sensitive to fluctuations in oil price, although sometimes they have short memories. I think the ones that are currently buying EVs understand that there's volatility there, but also the total cost of ownership of that car, there's a whole lot of other factors that make that very, very low, even at the lowest oil price. So at the lowest price at the pump, you're still way ahead on fuel and way ahead on maintenance. So once you cross through sticker parity on the car, you're in positive territory. So, and you're at no deficit in terms of, can I qualify for the loan or the lease up front? That's why the sticker parity, by the way, is such an issue. Right. Even if you intellectually understand that the car will be cheaper over time, cheaper 5,000 pounds yeah. more money at the time I buy it and the bank won't give me the loan, it doesn't matter Yeah, because the banks don't contemplate that you'll have a lower cost of ownership on the vehicle. So once you're way up the curve and you're and the full forces are in effect, I think by the time you get there, electric vehicles are cheaper and then they're cooler they're faster. They accelerate better. Everything's better about an electric vehicle. Weight balance is better. Um, the super car, all the supercar manufacturers are starting to now shift away from hybrids and into full electric. So you're seeing Aston Martin, tons of other supercar manufacturers saying, yeah, we're going to build an all-electric car. Tesla's already proven that unsuspecting parent of two teenagers with a dog and a you know, Starbucks in their hand can smoke a exotic car <laughs> in a straight line anyway, right. right? Zero to 60. So once there's those aspirational vehicles, once the, the entire consumer sentiment is flipped into the notion of a transmission shifting, just that lurching doesn't feel right. The stop start of a fossil fuel motor when you're at a, a stoplight or a stop sign, you know, the that's regulation in some countries where the engine has to cease. That feels very awkward. It feels like I've been yanked into the past. But do you have a Tesla or something? Yeah, I've, yeah. yeah I'm on my second one. But interestingly enough, 
My wife drives a Mercedes B250e, which is an all-electric B-class. Between her and myself, we don't have the ability to burn gasoline. And we never are out of luck in getting someplace with our electric vehicles. But if there were a scenario, I mean, we're all in. We are so now unencumbered by the need to maintain our cars or think about fueling that it's actually, we are way ahead of the game. Autonomy, how does that factor into your plan for global domination? I am talking about that with this company internally and externally, but mostly with our employees, incessantly. Why? Because the world looks like a giant fleet. We refer to it as the fleetification of everything. Start a hashtag or something like that, or better word or something. (laughs) You know, we're not, you know, I'm not a marketing person and it shows. But depending on the study that you read, again, let's anchor against the U.S. number because it's easy because we have all the stats. It was a quarter billion cars and light duty trucks on U.S. roads. And if you overnight had level five autonomy, and every consumer comfortable with autonomous drive. So just wave a wet magic wand and pretend yeah. that, you know, we all got over our fears and it's what we want to use. You would need somewhere between 33 million and 50 million cars, depending on who you ask. It's an eighth to a fifth. Of so the get rid of 200 million plus cars. Yeah. And it's really simple math. It's not as, when you look at the utilization statistics, it's not as mind blowing as that initial figure sounded. You had 4% utilization. If you cut the number of cars on the road, by a factor of five, mm-hmm. you go to 20% utilization of those autonomous vehicles. So you don't need that much utilization. So you have penny, plenty of extra capacity for peaks. Yeah, because everybody's so using the, that 4% is all happening at the same time. Not 100% at the same time. So when, and then when you look at the overlap, some element of delivery or repurposing of vehicles in the middle of the day, and you look at how that all gets statistically multiplexed, you can see your way to a world that has far fewer vehicles. When you're not driving as a consumer, it's a fleet manager for that service that's determining exactly how those vehicles go somewhere to get fueled and when they get scheduled to do that. Do you like to drive? I do. So that future that you just laid out, the mm-hmm. fleetification of everything, most people aren't going to own a car. You know, they're basically just going to be passengers in a kind of a, a public mm-hmm. transport system. Mm-hmm. That requires basically an entire world to change, change their chip. No, yes and no. So I've thought about this a lot. And let's take a person that's even probably more passionate than you and I, a person that is collecting cars and loves them. Jay Leno. Yeah. For a lot of what Jay Leno probably does, he's on a conference call and he's in L.A. traffic. I'm surmising that he's not enjoying that driving experience because you're not really driving. You're sitting there guiding a car to make increments of 20 feet to get to where you want to go in LA. In LA, that would be like two miles. Right. And so I think what it transforms to is much like the equestrian world, where if you're really into driving and you're really into collecting, I think what people are going to be collecting are old school mechanical cars or purpose-built mechanical cars that don't have any of the computing assist that existing cars have, because that's when it's more fun to drive. So it's the people like today who listen to vinyl. Yes, who listen to vinyl. My wife, for my uh, birthday a couple of years back, got me a present where I got some professional driving instruction down at a track here, and they used open-wheeled, 100% manual vehicles. Like no ABS, right? <laughs> no, you know, so you and know. You survived. <laughs> well, not only did I survive, but the level of engagement—you know, you're suddenly thinking it's enjoyable, it's fun. You're in a controlled environment; you can't hurt yourself as long as you're following the rules. It's at least harder to. 
And then when I leave that setting, I'm back more in a transport me somewhere setting, not a have fun setting. Yeah. Right? So I think it'll just become modal, and you'll see people actually go on weekends to enjoy real driving somewhere. And then if you're burning fossil fuels even, who cares? Because that's going to be so negligible relative to all the other cleanup that we've done. It's not going to matter. So when does this all happen? I don't think it's an exact science. I think on the autonomy side... I feel I think, like the transition almost necessarily has to be messy. The problem with the messy is that in between where we are now with autonomy and level five, you're in a actually, you're not only messy, but you're dangerous. And the reason is you're requiring the driver to assist, but it's much like the stories that you hear with airline pilots not being engaged. And when an emergency happens, they have to reacquire context. Yeah. And that split second is all all it takes and so the problem with high levels of driver assist where you're lulled into this false sense of security and you're effectively detaching you are now disengaged and the minute you realize you're in a situation where this is this car is not going to make the right decision you're trying to reacquire context but you probably don't have enough time so that's the very dangerous scenario so i think it's actually because of that grappling with the rules the policy rules around all this stuff is going to take Lauren, we think. Yeah. But then when we ultimately hit that technology point where it's suddenly better than any human being could do, we're going to get to that point with autonomy. And that's going to, that onset's going to be amazingly fast. You're not going to see it coming. It's going to be a, oh my God, wait a minute. I didn't think we were there yet. Now we're there. And then the adoption rate of those services and the abandonment of personally driven vehicles is going to be precipitous. Is that 10 years? I don't know. It's less than 20. So I asked somebody else's question on another podcast. Um, and, but I have a two year old when I was 16, I got my driver's license the day I turned 16 and it was like this moment in life. And I'm always wondering he's, you know, 14 years from now, will he even need one? Oh no, I mean, or there are gonna. It depends on where he lives. Yeah, here. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. I mean, an, an incredibly rural lifestyle probably be the last to yeah. go, right? Yeah. Um, because you know, I think a lot of those services are gonna. You just do the economic math of is it worth it rolling starts out in the here? Cities, yeah, yeah, and so yeah, when you're in dense dense areas like the Bay Area, or worse, uh, you know, a, a big city, London, New yeah. York. It's going to go fast in those areas. And for you guys, what? so what do you do? You have 50,000 ports now. How many are overseas? Oh, Because I right. saw, looked at the U.K. maps. There's it's, a ton in the U.K. Yeah, though. in the U.K. because we've done a lot with fast charge uh, in the U.K. So yeah. most of our ports are fast charge. We're just, we've only been in Europe a little over a year. Right. And just the construction permitting for even a garden variety fast, <laughs> uh, a medium speed charger yeah. can take six months oh, or yeah. more. Uh, and then you've got, uh, there's some weather uh, situations where not a whole lot of construction for something that's discretionary is going to happen when the ground's frozen. So depending yeah. on where you are farther north in Europe, the, but there's under a thousand right now in Europe, but that's going to change pretty quickly because the penetration rate is, is starting to climb. We just showed up yeah. there a year ago. So you have these 50,000. As all of these massive forces start to take hold, what are you guys doing? Just Is it simply you figured it out, you just have to build a bunch of ports everywhere? 
Yeah, I wish it were that simple. The everyday charging model, which is most of the fuel, the business model is we don't own those chargers because we're not trying to make money on electricity because if we were trying to make money on electricity, we would make impossible what's actually happening, which is people giving away highly subsidized or free energy as an amenity. So would so, you rent those out? No, we, we sell them. Uh, there are other financing models, so you could pay as yeah. you go as well. And then we charge businesses usually an annual fee for keeping that on keeping that charger on charge point. And then through that, we take care of everything else. So we keep it on the network. That works with our mobile environments, our relationships with auto companies, right. so any in-dash integrations. And then maintenance and support is all taken care of. Payment remittance is all taken care of. We uh, deal with you know managing the who can use it list, so most employers don't want people that aren't employees using it so we have easy ways of them enabling right. people to sign up everything from valet services uh, support to uh, you name it so you have enough to keep you busy we have enough to keep us busy but this whole transition to where bus truck delivery and autonomy look like a giant fleet problem is co- is where a lot of the innovative thinking is right now in the yeah company. so who is going to control that fleet okay so it's interesting depends on the context is it a delivery fleet? That's a pretty easy answer because UPS controls the UPS fleet. DHL controls theirs. Yes. Amazon's actually starting to invest in that. Yeah. So now let's look at autonomous vehicle platforms. Mm-hmm. There you need millions of vehicles. So we think that that is going to look like project companies owning pools of vehicles that are conformant with uh, technology specified by the platform. And they'll consign those vehicles into the platform. So they'll get a cut of the revenue that those vehicles generate. So let's take, you know, Uber, Lyft, DD, Ola, name your okay. name your autonomous. So they'll have service. fifty thousand self driving Volvos. They may, but they won't own I don't believe that they will own them all. They may start in a city. For example, Waymo might start in a San Francisco mm-hmm. or pick a, or someplace in Arizona or wherever they want to start. They may own that fleet outright. Okay. If you look at the capex required to own the fleet outright to transport every human being on the planet, that's bigger than anyone. That's just bigger than anyone's wallet. If you try to pool capital from different sources, it's surmountable because you would allow them to make a return on that investment. So as long as the economic share is such that it's like building a toll road, it's like building a bridge, there's plenty of project companies that do that sort of stuff. It's owning a pool of vehicles and consigning them into the platform, that sort of approach will work. It may not be a pure model either. You may have the platform vendor own key cities and the vehicles in key cities and allow more of a model where other people can sign in vehicles that they own onto that platform for a cut for rural areas or a city that's a tier two city for a particular platform. So you're going to get a whole lot of mix. The moral of the story is even with a dramatically reduced number of vehicles, it's going to take a lot of capital to basically deploy an autonomous service when it goes ultimately mass market and it's not localized to a few geographies. It's going to be fascinating times. Yeah. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Pat for sitting down and talking through all of that. Be interested to see how the whole autonomous driving technology, how that develops. I've, I'm the longer I spend out here, the more skeptical I am. It just feels like it is still really far away. But we shall see. We shall see. Perhaps it is like he says it will be. It's to be kind of no, 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 and then all of a sudden it's yes. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed the conversation. You will find me this weekend, as you do every weekend, in the Sunday Times newspaper. 
You can also find me online at thetimes.co.uk, on Twitter at Danny Fortson, and on the electronic mail at danny.fortson.co.uk. We'll be back next week with another show. I hope you have a fantastic weekend, and thank you. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.